Hi, um, I'm Caroline, I'm a medical student at NYU. I was just wondering, I, f I feel like science and technology is one of the fields where there's the greatest potential for discovering something that you want to have for the human good, but then being corrupted and used for something not necessarily as good. I was just wondering how you reconcile kind of making these amazing discoveries like um, genes or you know cures for diseases with the, f or if you do have the fear, I guess, that, that it'll be used for other purposes, kind of contrary to what you were intending. So we worried about that a lot uh, in the Human Genome Project because when it became possible to imagine reading out all the six billion letters of the DNA code that we should have inside each of our cells, the question was what's going to happen with that information? Will it be used against people? Will designer babies start popping up all over? Uh, will there be other nefarious uses of this that we will all regret? And, you know, I don't think we've had necessarily a great track record in addressing those kinds of concerns. They've often waited for the crisis and then people rallied around and said, now what do we do? And one thing we tried to do with the Genome Project, which is still an experiment in progress, was to be anticipatory and to think ahead of time. What are some of the possibilities that are going to emerge if we actually succeed at this? And out of that grew a program, uh, Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications Program, so-called ELSI which became the largest supporter of bioethics research ever and continues uh, to be a major source uh, of support for bioethics, spending now about $20 million a year on research uh, of that sort. And that was pretty useful in that it did lay out in an anticipatory way what some of the areas were that were realistic causes for concern. It also allowed you to take some of the wacky ones that were scientifically like just out there somewhere and not waste too much time on them. And one consequence of that, although it took about 12 years to make it happen, was the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which was passed and signed a year and a half ago, which says your DNA cannot be used against you uh, in, in making decisions about health insurance coverage or workplace decisions. And that was a big battle, and it was one that was won. And I don't think it would have happened if there hadn't been this sort of anticipatory approach. But Sometimes people come to me and say, well, because of these concerns about misuse, you just shouldn't be doing research on this particular area. And Tony, no doubt, can reflect upon that when it comes to research on, for instance, um, pathogens that could be used in bioterrorism. Should we be doing that kind of work? Should we be publishing that kind of work? But you want the good guys to be empowered, too, not just the bad guys. <clears throat> and I guess the position you can almost always take is that knowledge itself does not have moral value. It's not good or evil. It's just knowledge. It's the application of that knowledge that can tip you in one direction or the other. But I think science has responsibility uh, for that next step. And maybe that's something we wouldn't necessarily have said a few decades ago, but I think is now part of the mindset, at least, of many of the leaders of science, that it is not appropriate for us to go in the lab and close the door and let somebody else worry about the consequences of what we've just discovered. We've got to be part of that discussion, if only because scientists often are the ones that have access to the facts and can help illuminate the conversation so that you don't make a crazy decision based on misunderstanding. If you look at our stem cell debate, uh, over the last uh, seven or eight years. It's not a pretty picture. So much of the, the dug-in positions on embryonic stem cells have been based upon a scientific misunderstanding of the different kinds of stem cells that are out there. So if you want a case study of how not to do it, that might be one of them. And again, I think it would have helped if scientists had been out there quickly 
explaining uh, yeah. some of the nuances of what stem cell research is really all about. And that didn't happen quite soon enough to prevent uh, rather strong, emotional, passionate, political uh, dug-in positions uh, that are still largely on the scene uh, to, from emerging. So it's, yeah. a, it's a great question. To you know, in, in the area of infectious diseases, we've really had a struggle with that because we can essentially make an organism. We could make it the way it originally is in nature, and we could make it resistant to drugs. We could make it more virulent because now that we have all of this extraordinary sequencing capability, we can identify the genetic components of virulence, <coughs> of transmissibility, or what have you. And, and, and what has really uh, uh, been translated from the early years of the emergence of the recombinant DNA technology era is what's called a, a, a culture of responsibility among scientists. So you're always gonna have the possibility of some rogue, crazy person somewhere. But in general, if you cultivate this culture of transparency, as Francis said, and of responsibility of not doing something reckless, it is amazing how well the system has worked. Even though there are scientists that can do things that could ultimately be dangerous, it's just not done. And everything is trans, that's the beauty of the transparency of every time you discover something, you publish it. Every time you sequence something, you put it in a data bank so that everybody knows about it. So I think transparency and that underlying culture of responsibility is what makes the system work. Mm -hmm. Hi, um, my, yep. Hi, my name is Joe Tayag. Um, I'm a student at the School of Public Health at Harvard. Um, thank you so much for coming and, and for contributing your energy and insights. It's really great. Uh, I had a question about access. So um, when I was working in California, I was representing minority communities and those of the low income. And I had the opportunity to actually work with the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine to begin thinking about issues of access and diversity. What I quickly learned was that those two words can be interpreted differently at various streams of the research and development process all the way out through the distribution and commercialization of medicines. If, if you're looking so far downstream, access becomes an issue of affordability. If you're looking um, you know, further through the basic science part, um, will the development of stem cell lines match those of different ethnic and racial origins? Um, further upstream, the inputs of the actual people at the bench, the scientists, the minds that are contributing, um, the kind of focus for this medical enterprise, um, how diverse will those resources be distributed ac ac across communities? Um, just so throughout this whole pipeline, and, and uh, like seeing science as itself a kind of enterprise that involves human inputs, um, like how do we, or how do you guys think um, we could create a culture that, that has that as the end goal, that has this kind of ultimate um, vision of access, um, maybe further upstream, um, or something that becomes a part of leadership in the sciences? So, great question. He was at our meeting this morning. Yeah, you should have, should have been at the table this morning when the institute directors were all gathered around uh, listening to a report which was actually pretty discouraging about our success in recruiting investigators uh, from diverse backgrounds uh, to come and be scientific leaders at NIH. Uh, and when we looked at where we wanted to be in terms of our workforce, of uh, the people who are really driving the research efforts, uh, we are far short in terms of representation. Uh, we've done perhaps somewhat better uh, of late uh, with gender diversity, but still not at the higher ranks. Women are underrepresented in the most senior levels at NIH and in academia, but we've done quite poorly in terms of representation of African Americans, of Hispanics, uh, of other uh, traditionally underrepresented groups. 
And uh, there's all kinds of uh, ways that that can be uh, explained, if you will, but not in a way that should make anybody feel complacent. And obviously a lot of the problem begins right from the very beginning in terms of whether our educational system makes careers in scientific research appealing at all uh, to people from diverse backgrounds or whether the absence of role models, uh, the absence of mentors, uh, the way in which the system is currently structured drives people away, uh, rather uh, in, in droves, and, and that's part of the problem. But then I don't think we do a very good job for those who do find their way into that career in terms of nurturing and encouraging them, and there's a lot of dropping out along the way, particularly at transition points. Uh, this is a very hard problem, or we would have gotten further with it by now, and actually it's one of uh, the things I hope at NIH during the time I'm there we can take a hard look at and try to assess what are the programs that have worked and what are the ones that really haven't, and we shouldn't keep doing the same things over and over again thinking they're going to work if they never did before. But clearly I'm totally with you because our workforce doesn't look like our population, and that can't be a good thing for all kinds of reasons. And other areas that you mentioned, uh, certainly the stem cells, the absence of diversity was one of the reasons, I think, uh, that it was really important to have Obama's executive order uh, signed and to have NIH now have the opportunity to begin to allow the use of federal funds for a much wider range of stem cells. And that's now happening. We now approved 43 just in the last three or four months. By a year from now, there will be hundreds of stem cell lines, including those from diverse backgrounds, so that we won't be quite so limited, and that's a good thing. In terms of clinical trials, we do try uh, to make sure that clinical trials are constructed in such a way that underrepresented groups have access to them, although there's often an issue there in terms of trust of the government and whether people are interested in being involved in such trials, and we have to work especially hard, I think, to provide that kind of reassurance. Frankly, it would help a lot if the investigators running the trials came from the same communities they were reaching out to. So we come back again to the lack of diversity in our workforce. And then we, of course, get to access when it comes to actual health care, an area which uh, we can all look at the evidence for health disparities uh, in this country and acknowledge uh, that we have a long way to go uh, in terms of access, in terms of providing a chance uh, for a long life uh, to everybody at equal uh, likelihood. And that's a complicated equation that has a lot of pieces to it in terms of economics uh, and social activities, cultural practices, but a lot of it is access to health care. One hopes that what happened this week will be a good step in the right direction, but we obviously have a lot of things to add on top of that before we could even begin to say uh, we have a health care system where access is fair and equitable. Now, from the downstream part of that, just very briefly, uh, that goes more at a global level, not just minorities in, in this country. You alluded to access to, Francis was saying, care. There are some fundamental ethical principles that are now being implemented in how we do research internationally. There was an era where there was what we would call parachute research. You parachute into a country, you do an experiment, you get some data that would likely help other people but not the people in the country and then you get the heck out of the country. Well, right now there's absolutely uh, a strict uh, ethical and, and, and regulatory guidelines that if you do a clinical trial of any product in any country, you have to guarantee that that product will be accessible to the people in that country or you cannot do the trial in that country. So you can't go into a country and try something that they'll never be able to afford or that a, a procedure that you'll never be able to do. And that's, I think, a very good idea. Mm -hmm. um, 
Thank you for joining us. I'm very excited to call my immunologist mother after this and let her know that I was able to meet with you. Um, and on a side note, last time I heard you speak, Dr. Collins, I sent her a picture of you playing the guitar with your double helix uh, oh. guitar brand. <laughs> yeah. She's a fan of your book and your work. But um, my question is, from my background, I'm uh, a Reynolds Fellow at Harvard. I'm at the Business School and also at the Kennedy School of Government. And currently, I've been working on malaria in Africa. And so from your perspective, institutionally, how can the business sectors, NGOs, nonprofits better support your work? What can we do not being medical doctors or researchers? Well, you know, the whole, the whole issue of malaria, business people, it's very interesting that some of the best support uh, for both the care of and research in diseases that affect developing nations are done by the private sector and companies because of two things. One, it's the right thing to do for the country, but two, it's for their own enlightened self-interest. So if you look at the accessibility of antiretroviral drugs in South Africa, the actual people who run the factories and the people who run the industry there are the ones that are most enthusiastic about getting the drugs to their people. They're even a few steps ahead of the, the, the South African government. And the same thing holds true with malaria, and that is there are simple things right now in malaria. I mean, we obviously need a malaria vaccine. We have one drug, artemisinin derivatives, that when used in combination is superb, but we're starting to see inklings that there's a little bit of a resistance, particularly in Cambodia, where for one reason or other, resistance to malaria seems to, malaria drugs seems to happen. But there are some fundamental things, including what was included in President Bush's President's Malaria Initiative, and then has been now trans over, transferred over to this administration. Things like the supply of bed nets, indoor spraying, treatment for pregnant women, and prophylaxis, that the business community can actually get very much involved in getting that implemented in there because you have international business communities. You know, for $5, you can get a family a bed net for four years. You know what that means? That you could essentially guarantee that they're going to have a 95% decrease in malaria incidence. So there are a lot of things that are outside of the arena of research that the business community could get involved in. The uh, most recent manifestation of this, the Global Health Initiative, which President Obama announced last May, which is $63 billion over the course of six years, brings on board the malarial initiative as well as PEPFAR. Uh, as well as uh, neglected tropical diseases, and uh, we're actually pushing to have some focus also on chronic non-communicable diseases, which is the fastest growing area of morbidity and mortality in low-income countries. Uh, so uh, right now, the Global Health Initiative is trying to figure out exactly uh, how to structure it in the Obama administration to get the maximum benefit uh, from the funds available, and so this is a great time to be looking into partnerships with the business community and with NGOs uh, to make sure that all that motivation and all that skill and energy gets put to good use. So I think there's going to be quite a conversation going on here in the next few months about exactly your question. Over here. Um, you still have one round? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Susan Emmett, Duke Medical Student, Howard Hughes Fellow. You mentioned, Dr. Fauci, the culture of responsibility among scientists. And I think it's a very poignant example in all the ways that we can, that science can be abused. Um, I think there's a very parallel issue in the medical community in terms of a culture of responsibility among physicians to make sure that healthcare is provided in an equal way and it is actually accessible to our whole nation. And 
we've made great strides in that in the last week, we think, as, you know, as this will pan out. But what I see just from working inside the medical community is that there's, there's very little of a culture of responsibility among the physicians themselves because they're either too busy or too burdened to be looking at the bigger picture. And do you have any recommendations for how to sort of broaden that view beyond just the hospital and just the workload to look at the policy issues and the bigger issues in terms of what we're actually doing with healthcare in this country? You, obviously, this is a very difficult question. Do I, do I have any ideas about how we can change a culture that has been going on for decades? Uh, it may seem, um, I'll say something that I feel deeply that, it, that could sound naive, but believe me, I'm the farthest thing from a naive person, is that I think that the field of medicine and health can really serve and should serve for every physician as kind of a lens to look upon a lot of the ills in society uh, because health is that for which a lot of things get channeled through. So I have always felt, still do feel, and hope that now maybe with the transformation of our healthcare delivery system that there will be more of an emphasis of this culture that physicians have responsibility for the care of the patient, but you know, not just the care of the patient, but for caring for the patient. So there's a difference there, a very subtle difference. I mean, if you really care about what happens to the patient, as opposed to going in and seeing this person, that person, that person, and that person. And I think if many more physicians assume that responsibility, I think that physicians can be a very, very powerful lobby for society's responsibility for the health of individuals. And that's why I think the healthcare reform is a very good step in that direction. That really does, in many respects, represent a realization in, in the form of legislation of society's responsibility for people's health. So I think that's a great start, and hopefully the physicians will really embrace that. I have to agree that physician idealism ought to support this transition into a caring attitude, but physicians are completely set upon by all kinds of other forces, as, as you know. And our system has been so completely backwards in terms of the incentives that physicians are offered up about how to practice medicine uh, that that has oftentimes overwhelmed uh, the most idealistic motives as they're simply trying to get through the day and trying to justify to whoever's counting the dollar bills at the end of the day that they got what they were supposed to to keep the operation going. And so the, 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 the idea that we really have to turn incentives around so that we focus on outcomes instead of on how many tests you ordered, which has been the current plan, and Atul Gawande has written about this uh, very effectively and is worth uh, reading over and over again. Unless we do that, even I think the most highly idealistic motivated physicians are going to fall victim to a system that pushes them in the other direction on a very busy Thursday. You just sort of go with what the system is asking you to do. We have to utterly turn that upside down.